rest in our blessedness, but that he blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others, whatever that may look like. And so I hope that um, as you heard Diane, and as you've seen the video, and as you go out and begin to talk to Diane and Kathy at the table, that this will be something that will be of uh, a ministry that you can get your hands on and be a part of. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter number 10. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 31 this morning. Is your compassion fueling your obedience? And so we're going to be looking at the, uh, the, well, if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you may have come across the rich young ruler and uh, the interaction that Jesus had with him. Well, we're going to be looking at that this morning. Why don't we stand together as we read his word? Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is one who has left there is there is no one rather who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. May God add his blessing to his holy and perfect word. You may be seated. So in our Sunday school class, we've been going through this book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And in the preface of the book, there is a, a picture that Packer brings out from some other that he read. He wanted to give credit where credit was due. And he was talking about where... They, these people that were on vacation in Spain, and there would be people that would be on the balcony, and then there would be people that would be on the sidewalk. Well, those that were on the balcony, they were called balconiers. And what they would do is they would sit up there, and they would watch everybody go by and make comments about how they talked or how they walked or kind of pontificated on how they should be or where they think that they were going. And these balconiers were up there, and they were just thinking about stuff. And just kind of reacting to stuff. Those that were walking on the 
on the actual trail that were walking on the sidewalk, well, they were a little different because they were ones who, while they were thinking about all of those things, they actually had a place to go. And they were thinking about, how am I going to get there? What do I need to get there? And you could, th- and he used that to show the difference. Is that sometimes when we are approaching the scriptures and we're approaching how to live life, we're balconeers. We're, we're pontificating on how the culture should go and we're making comments on how everybody else is doing things, but we ourselves aren't really doing that much. Whereas those that are travelers, well, they got their boots on the ground. They're getting somewhere. They're actually putting feet to their faith and moving forward in a way that they're, where, they, where they're being obedient with what they are doing. So when Jesus is approached by this man, well, it says here he's a man, but in Matthew nineteen sixteen to 29, he says he's a young man. And then in Luke 8, 18, 18 to 30, in verse 20, he says he's a ruler. And so all of a sudden you're piecing all of this together. That's why we call him the rich young ruler, because this three out of the four gospels mention him and mention this interaction with Jesus. And I'm not a math major, but three out of four is pretty significant. If three, if he's represented that many times, then there is a lesson here that we most certainly uh, need to learn is that our obedience is not simply obedience by just keeping some superficial superficial commands and superficial moral um, platitudes and then really not interacting with anybody else. Because there are Christians that do that. There are Christians that love God, but they really don't like people. They love God, but they don't really love the culture that is careening away from the things of God. They may love, they may, they may say they love God, but they don't love his image bearers. And the reality is we show how much we love God by how much we love those that he created and put his image on. Well, you say, what, but look at what they're doing. Look at the lifestyle that they're living. Look at the activity that they're going in. I'm supposed to love them as well? Yeah, we, we are because they are image bearers of God. And we were broken, are broken, and they are broken. They were just all manifesting itself very, very differently but still, we need to make sure that we're coming alongside and that the compassion that we have is f- being fueled by our obedience. And our obedience is fueled by compassion, by compassion for our love for God, but by our compassion for those that are around us. So we're going to look at this conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. Um, I was going to say there's no points, but I would, I would fear that's going to set it up to where some of you are going to say it's going to be pointless. It's not going to be pointless. That There is going to be some significant points to this sermon, but hopefully as we get to it that God will speak to you on one or more than one of them. So it says that this young man is coming up and he is kneeling before him and he has a, he has a question. It's a question that all of us would do well to ask, at least in part. This question is, a concern about eternal life. But he frames it in a way that must alarm us. And I know it alarmed Jesus. It says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see the problem with that question? The problem with that question is is that he believed that there was something that he could do to earn favor with God enough for God to come along and say, you're a good guy. You're a good lady. Why Why don't you just come on in? Every so often I have conversations with people who may not feel like that they're worth anything. They're not worth being able to open the Bible. They're not being able, they're worth being able to 
do any of these things, come to church or just wh- whatever it is. And, and whenever I'm confronted with that, with something like that, I'm always say, well, you know what? You're actually absolutely right. You're not worthy. No one's worthy. That's why we need Jesus, because if we were worthy, then the cross would be of no value. He would have been running a fool's errand by going to the cross and rescuing us from our sin and our brokenness. No, we're not worthy. The cross shows us we're not worthy. The Bible shows us we're not worthy. But the Bible also shows us one who is. So when we say, what must I do? We focus so much on the doing, then we forget about what he's done. So when you start thinking about what must I do? Back up and say, oh, I'm so thankful for what he's done on my, on my behalf as a substitute. And so he says, good teacher. Now, that was a, that was a, a common um, way to be able to address a rabbi because they recognized him to be a rabbi or a teacher. And, and Jesus comes along and he begins to make sure that he's, he understands that, you know, the definition of good if you are here on Good Friday, you may remember that I was talking about how sometimes we view the word saint, and no, not the football team in Louisiana. When we talk about saint, I'm talking about that when I first heard the word saint, it was because someone had done a really good thing. Oh, that guy is a saint. Or some of you may have been raised in the Roman Catholic church, and you may have recognized that they're talking about saints as super Christians that get to get to skip purgatory, not get out of jail free, but get out of purgatory free, and they get to go right to instant heaven if they are meant to be saints. And for us, saints are everybody. You know, we're, we're all saints. We, we mess up the definition, and we mess up the definition of good. Usually when we talk about good, boy, that hot dog was good. No, Okay, you may have enjoyed it, it was, it was tasty and all that, but we use the word good like we use the word love. We just kind of throw it around. And what Jesus is saying is don't use the word good as comparative. Use the word good as an object that, that God, he, he alone is good. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Are you calling me God? Now, if he had said, well, yes, well, then... Okay, now we're on to something, but he didn't, he didn't go there. And I, I, I think about this passage sometimes because I, I took, I've taken a lot of evangelism classes. And I'm looking at these, the, the way Jesus is conducting his evangelism here, and I don't think he would have done very well in our evangelism classes. Because what the evangelism classes tell you to do is, you know, you've got you know, five steps to peace with God, four spiritual laws, you know, two questions from evangelism explosion. If you were to die right now, you know, would you go to heaven? They have, they have those two questions. And there's, there's always these formats. And you'd have to get through the questions and you'd have to say them just right. No, you didn't say them right. Let's run it again. And you got to keep going and going and going. And what you're trying to get is a decision. You got to, and actually I heard one guy say it this way. You got to close the deal. As the kids say, that's a little cringe. It, it really is. That just There's something about that. Because Jesus doesn't do this. Look at what Jesus has and how we would sometimes look at this. Well, he had a willing seeker. The guy ran up to him, kneeling before him, asked him the question. Right? So he had a willing seeker. He had an influential seeker. He was rich. Whoa, do you know how many projects that he could help us fill? 
fulfill in that? If, if, he would, if he were to give how much tithing, how much our general fund would just, oh boy, it'd be great if God would use him to be able to help us out for that. Or he's young. He might have kids. That'd be great. Well, th- th- this is great. This is, this is a prime prospect. He was rich. He was influential. Well, he was influential in that he was part of the Sanhedrin. Well, he has inroads to these folks. He might be able to win some of them. Oh, this is, this is great. But you know what can happen with that? We begin to look at, some, at a person as a prospect or a project. You've got to be careful not to want results that bypass relationships. And Jesus would not, would not, would not bypass the relationship. He's not going to breeze by you. He's not going to breeze by anybody. He will give you the exact attention that you need. But Jesus begins to chastise him. Whoa, whoa, Jesus. Like, come on, we're trying to win this guy and get him into the kingdom. What are you doing? Why are you chastising him? That's not very winsome. What are you doing? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he starts going into, you know, the commandments. Right? And so he begins to say, you know, you know, the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. All but one of those are from what are called the second table of the commandments. The first table is about our relationship with God. The second table is about our relationship with each other. And notice that Jesus locks in and lands on that second table. How are you with other people? And so he's looking at this. He's moving forward and he's beginning to launch in and to be able to ask these questions. And look at how the man responds. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, there's a passage where Paul is talking about his past life, his life before he became a Christian. And one of the things that he said was, as to my obedience in Philippians 3, I was blameless. Now, when we hear the word blameless, that's not the same as being perfect. That didn't mean that Paul never sinned. But what happened was is that he took the appropriate steps with, his, with asking for forgiveness and offering the proper sacrifices to make sure that he was right with God. So he was without blame. And so that may be what this gentleman is doing. Maybe. I, I, we don't see it here. This is conjecture. But this is what we're seeing here is that he is, he's looking and saying, you know, I've kept all these from my youth. And even if I haven't kept it, I've taken the appropriate measures by going to the temple and going to the priest and making sure that I got, hey, I'm good, Jesus. I'm good, Jesus. I have, I have never murdered anybody. I have never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never borne false witness. I've never defrauded. And I love my mom and dad. Jesus, though, will not have it. Because every so often I talk about this with our staff is because, I'll give you just an example, and I may have shared this before, but it's been years. But, and I know you remember everything I ever say. However, let me just go over this, is that, so every so often someone comes up to me, I know this may be a shocker, but every so often someone, someone comes up to me and they're a little uh, vexed. 
they're a little, uh, little upset about something that was going on. It's either something that I may have said or something I may have done or whatever. And, and every so often someone comes up to me. And, and so there was one time where I said something about, you know, that, that God's okay with change. And for some people that, that um, riles them up. And so there was, there was one lady, and she's with the Lord now, but she came up to me afterwards, and she was basically saying, I, I don't really like what you, what you said about that. And I'm like, what, what did I say? And then she repeated it back to me, and I didn't remember saying that, you know, but I, I, it sounded like something I would have said, so I believed her, you know, but I didn't, I didn't remember necessarily saying that, and I didn't have any nefarious motives about it, so, but it hit her. And I said, you know what, what call, call me, I'm in on Tuesday. I always take time with family on Monday. Call me on Tuesday. And we had about an hour of conversation. And about 20 minutes in, what something dropped for me is that usually when someone has something to say, there's usually a thing beneath the thing, right? They, they come at you with something, some issue. But over time, as you're talking to them, you begin to realize that what, I may, have, what may have been said or, or done may not have had may not have been bad in and of itself, but there's a personal association that someone has with what was done. And then all of a sudden you realize, okay, well, there's the thing beneath the thing. And so I start saying that frequently is that whenever someone calls, well, let's make sure that we understand the thing beneath the thing. For Jesus, the thing beneath the thing with us is we can feel really good about, I've never murdered. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're angry at someone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. The thing beneath the thing. If you have committed adultery, well, I've never been unfaithful physically with my wife. Yeah, but do you lust? Are you looking at someone that's not your wife? Well, then you've committed adultery in your heart, the thing beneath the thing. Do you understand? And so what what was going on with the Pharisees and what was going on with this ruler who was part of this group was thinking, I have been obedient externally. But Jesus knows the thing beneath the thing in all of our hearts to know what's going on with us spiritually, internally. Well, no one could know that. No, I wouldn't know that. You could, I'm very easy to fool. I need people to come around me and hear other things and read other things. Like, are you seeing something? Oh, I'm seeing something there. I, I'm very easy to fool. God's not. God is... God knows exactly what's going on. In fact, it says in Psalm 139 that even the things that are in the darkness are as light to him. And so when we're seeing this, Jesus, how does he approach him? This is how we would approach him. No, you, no, no, no. You've sinned. You've sinned. I know you've committed adultery. I know you, I saw you looking at that lady. I know you've looked at somebody. You know, you've, you've, you've committed adultery. Get out of here. Oh, I, I know you've, uh, I know you've been angry at somebody. Don't tell me you haven't murdered. You've been angry at somebody. Come on, get, get it together. Get out of here. Cause I hear some of the conversations about how we view people that are struggling in our culture. How do we view people that are, that are struggling with gender identity, sexual orientation? Do we call them nuts? Freaks? Or are they image bearers of God as well? Who need to be rescued from their sin just like you needed to be rescued from yours? Come on. Am I hearing anybody? This is, what, this is what we've got to make sure we're looking at. So this is how we react to people. And it's sometimes it's no wonder why sometimes you know, we want people to come to church, but 
then we treat them in a certain way, and they're, well, I don't want to be a part of that. I got that growing up. I don't need that now. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 21. Read every word in black in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do you see? He did not run him out because he blew it. He did not run him out because he didn't get it. We tend to be so hard on people that don't meet our expectations. We are, and, and, we put, and, we, and we just get in on that, wanting people to obey our law, our way. And if they don't, get out of here. Not Jesus. That, and Jesus wasn't a softy either. He will lean in and let you know truth. He will lean in and let you know, get behind me, not buttercup. Get behind me, Satan. He'll lean in. But he leans in in love. He leans in speaking the truth in love. Jesus looked at him, loved him. He was wondering about his eternal status. Are you? Well, you may have had someone come after you and say, get out of here. Come on, you should know better. Jesus won't do that. Churches are filled with human beings that don't always get it right. Jesus always does. And it says here, you like one thing, right? You like one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened, the writer says. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. The English word does not capture that well enough. Anxious, depressed, just gone. I mean, he was so low. He really thought, which made me wonder, was he coming to Jesus just for Jesus to affirm him? I I don't know. It doesn't say. We'll find out. We can turn in our hymnals to 495 and sing, we'll, un- we'll understand it better by and by. We don't know. But what we do know is that he went away disheartened because he was not receiving the answer that Jesus gave him. He thought that Jesus would be like, you know, you're doing fine, buddy. I'll see you in heaven. But no. And you're like, well, how could Jesus let this person get away? Because he loves him enough not to leave him where he is. He loves him enough to say, look, This is an area of your life that I will help you address, but you've got to address it. Now, be careful reading this, because this was the issue for the rich young ruler. And it's something for us to think about as a transferable principle. Are we holding on to our our stuff so tightly and holding on to the riches of heaven loosely, or are we the other way around, holding the riches of heaven tightly? And then, but then holding on to the riches, because some people, you know, some people, they say, well, the, you know, I, I'm, I'm frugal. Well, that's Greek for the word cheap, right? And so people, they will do everything they can to save a penny in order to make sure that they're, they're doing this. And some people spend money to make money, right? We, we do this all the time. 
But if we spend money and we don't know what the return is, I don't know about that. But that's a lot of spiritual stuff, isn't it? There's a lot of spiritual things that we may ask, you know, to spend on. And we don't know what the return's going to be. We'll find out in heaven. But we've got to make sure that we're not holding on to the wrong things, the wrong riches here in this earth. And so Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to visit each and every one of you, know you well, and say this one thing you lack. Or for me, it'd be like these 10 things you lack, right? You know, this one thing you lack. He's going to address you and your needs. How will you respond to it? Are you going to walk away disheartened? Lord, I thought I had it all together. Come to church every Sunday. I come to Sunday school. I'm on 10 teams. I give. I get the receipt at the end of the year. I give. Look how much I give. My goodness. And then all of a sudden, he may come to you and say, well, why are you doing that? Are you doing that to be seen by men? Are you doing that to be seen by me? He always is checking our motives. Praise God for that. Because if he wasn't doing that, then we would be going by what someone else was saying. Or what, so, or what you may be thinking about yourself. Good or bad. Because you can look in the mirror and you'll be like, man, you got it together. Let's go get a great day. You can be looking in the mirror and you may be saying, oh boy, I got to do this again. With that face, oh my word, what in the world? And we have all these other things cascading in on us, trying to speak into us, good, bad, or ugly. And here, here is Jesus telling us, this one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and, and, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, th- this is something for, for many of us that we've got to make sure we're, we're looking at. Because when we start talking about Compassion Sunday and giving to the poor, or sometimes we may see someone on at, at a stop sign and they have a sign, um, we may wonder about their motives. There was actually one guy that I didn't question his motives at all. We were going to a Reds game, and we were getting ready to, to walk in. He's like, please give me money. I want beer. And people are actually giving him money because he was honest. You know, they, they felt that this was an honest thing that they were doing. But see, what, this was what happens is sometimes we see the, 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 the poor and the disenfranchised around us and depending upon our political leanings or depending on how um, we're growing up, we take a snapshot of them and say, well, all they got to do is just get a job. All they got to do is just pull, their, you know, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. This is America after all, right? We hear all that. R.C. Sproul actually helps us with this. There's four reasons in the Bible that people do get into that position. One is, well, you're lazy. You're, you're not working. You could. You don't. But there's three others. Um, the calamity, right? Calamity, natural disasters. What if we took a picture of Job in, the, in, in, in Job 1 and 2, took a picture of him after he lost all of his stuff? Well, wasn't that what his friends were doing? Well, Job, you did something wrong. That's why you're poor. Just repent. And he's like, I didn't do anything wrong. See what we do? So it could be calamity and natural disasters. We look on people and say, come on, pull yourself up. God looks on them with compassion every single time it could be due to the exploitation of the rich and powerful you ever had someone have have that happen to you oh boy people that have taken advantage of you because of some scheme that has come along some and and all of a sudden you you go from one time where you're you know 
I keep saying Scrooge McDuck Rick, sorry, but you know, you, where you're taking a bath and all of this money and then all of a sudden it's gone because someone exploited you. Well, God looks upon you with compassion as well. We live in a broken world. But some make that choice due to a call of God. And that's what he's, call, that's what he's calling here. He's saying, don't hold on to your riches so tightly or whatever your idol is. Don't hold on to that so tightly that you're missing the riches of heaven. This is not all there is. Francis Chan one time, he, he brought in about a 40-foot rope. And at the end was a, a little piece of tape that was around the end of one of the rope. And he said that little red piece on this 40-foot rope is time. The time that we were, from when we were born to when we die. And that's how much it is. The rest of it is eternity. And of course that didn't, I mean it, the rope came to an end. But you see, we're spending so much time on this part and we're not investing in this part. That's foolish if we were to do that. And so when the disciples come along and he has, has this conversation with them, I, I front loaded it for a reason, just so you know. But it says in verse 23, and he looked around and said to his disciples, right? So he's, he's looking at the rich young ruler and then he whips around. Now he's looking at his disciples. Teaching moment, guys. Make sure you're hearing what I have to say. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Notice it didn't say impossible. God may have blessed your socks off. You may have a lot of digits on your bank account. Man, that is, praise God. He's given you that as a blessing to you so that you will bless others. That's not me, that's delivering the mail. Well, he hasn't blessed me like that. Well, now he's given you an opportunity for him to show off on how you can rely on him. Everything, every place that he gives you is a place for him to demonstrate his glory for your, and for your good and for the good of those that are around you. But what was going on in the Old Testament was they assumed that because everybody was rich, those who were rich, like people like Abraham and David and others, you know, they were rich and so they must have been had favor with God. And so they began to equate, if I got a lot of money, then there must be favor with God. And, and, and he's saying, no, that's not always the case. I just talked to this rich young ruler because he was relying on his own works. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's, like, he's saying, it's not about what you do. In a few months, I'm going to sacrifice myself on the cross for you. I'm going to give my all for you so that it's not about what you do to get in good graces with God. It's about the good grace that God has given to you because of what he's done. And it says the disciples, verse 24, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, and then he gives it a, a general uh, understanding. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. You try to do it on your own, it's difficult. And then it says it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're trying to get all of your stuff to go through this little tiny space. Remember, it's not by the wide gate. It's by the narrow gate that we come in. And we've got to travel light. And he's all we need. You remember the phrase, Jesus is enough? I know we've gone, gone to a new mission, but that hasn't changed. And that's, where, that's how we go through. But then it says they were exceedingly astonished. I mean, they're like going from amazed to exceedingly astonished. And I'm afraid that they're going to keep going. Their heads were going to explode because they were not able to really get around all of what's going on here. And it says they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. 
looked at them, eyes on me, right? Looked at them and said, with man it is what? Hard? Difficult? Really, really, really a problem? No. What was the word? Impossible. You can't save yourself. There's no amount of anything that you can do. That's why he starts off in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You have to be destitute. There's not one thing that you can contribute to your salvation. Are you serious? No, I I am serious. But don't let that be the end of the story. That's a semicolon, not a period. There's not one thing that you can contribute to your salvation. That's why we have a Savior who came to rescue us and to save us from our sins. It's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Your salvation, it's possible. As we repent and we believe, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything to follow you. Peter's not quite getting it, but he's trying here. See, we have left everything to follow you. And look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands. In other words, your upbringing. You got, you, not that you hate your parents and you disregard your parents. No, you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. But you turn from a life that is not just about the things here on earth. You're turning and looking to Jesus in every way. For the sake of my, uh, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last first. C.S. Lewis was talking about one time how people would turn away. It's like turning away from what he's talking about here is like when you're turning away from a holiday at the sea to go play in mud pies. You would rather do that. But that's what many people do when they turn away from pursuing the things of God and pursuing Christ and all that he is and pursuing the riches of heaven for this temporary, unstable, unreliable mess, broken mess. God brings us to places that helps us to realize it's okay to be last because I know that if I'm in Christ, I'm first in the kingdom. So there was this story that, uh, that, that came out, um, and there's a, there's a, you may have heard a lot of variations to this, but um, it's in South America, Africa, and Asia. So the natives there, they devised a very clever method to be able to capture monkeys. Now, monkeys, that was sustenance for them, right? And so they found a way to do that. And so it says here that the plan is deceptively simple. I'm going to read it to make sure we get it right. The natives take a gourd or some similar object and drill a hole just large enough for a monkey's hand to pass through and then add some extra weight to the gourd with sand or pebbles and then put a nut or some fruit inside and place the gourd where the monkey will find it. And so the monkey sticks his hand through the hole to get the food, but with the prize in its grasp, the monkey cannot get its hand back out. Stuck. The hole's too small for the monkey's hand to pass through, so long as it's holding the treat and the gourd is too heavy for the creature to carry it. 
Because the monkey will not let go of its prize, it becomes trapped. The animal gives up its freedom in order to hold on to a piece of food. Because really, what do you have to do? Let go, slip his hand out on his way. And it seems obvious. But for us, we tend to do the same thing. Oh, Lord, I've worked so hard for this. I've worked so hard to get to this retirement. I've worked so hard to get to this promotion. I've worked so hard to get in this relation. I've worked so hard. Ah, You know, don't let me go. And all of a sudden, what's happening is that may not be what's for you. And we've all been in spots like that where you're like, this is God leading. You hope. You wish. You haven't asked him, but surely it's okay. And we hold on to it. And we have not a hunter, but a deceiver, an accuser, who is going around looking for someone to devour. We've got to be careful about that. This is what was going on with the rich young man. It was the monkey trap. He could not let go of his stuff in order to pursue Christ, which really shows this. We think more of our stuff than we think more of Christ. We think our stuff is more valuable than Jesus. Yeah, Jesus saves me spiritually, but what's he going to do for me in this life? Try him. He'll show you. He will give you eyes to see what is important in this life and what's not. And you'll find out over the years the things that maybe in your 20s that you thought were really important. And now you're in your 70s, 60s, 80s, 90s. You're like, really? I spent all my time on that? But hadn't it wonderful that God still brings us to a place and is still teaching us? He hasn't given up on us, even if we give up on ourselves or people have given up on us. And I lo- that is my favorite part of this whole piece. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he's looking at you right now. And you may be trying to find your way to be able to get right with God. And you may be feeling very satisfied. And Jesus may be confronting you right now. But please know he's looking at you. And he loves you. And he wants... And will bring you to where you need to be. But you gotta let go. Just say this real quick. In my previous church, there was a fellow that was so struggling with coming to Christ. I hope this holds together okay, but he was struggling coming to Christ that I'm serious, his knuckles turned white. He was hanging on, hanging on. I mean, his body was, he, and he would not, he would not commit. It's that white knuckle disease. How are your knuckles this morning? What are you holding on to that's giving those knuckles that white, shiny sheen? Let go. And see all that Christ has for you. Repent and come and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Be rescued from your sins. Be rescued from yourself. And even if you're, oh, I'm already a Christian. Well, that he may be saying that one thing you lack. Trust him with it. He, he's got you. He's got what's best for you. Come to him as Lord and Savior. Help us, Father, to understand what you have for us. Help us to be grateful, Lord, when you say this one thing you lack, these two things you lack, this, these ten things you lack. Oh, Lord, I didn't realize I was... In such a state. But thank you for caring about me. 
for not leaving me or forsaking me, for letting me know where I need to go. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to let go of some things that we've been holding on to that are hindering and proving to be obstacles to our walk with you. Father, I pray that this rich young ruler did come to know Jesus. We don't know, but I pray that he did. And we know that you hear our prayers long before we pray them. But more, more to it, Lord, I pray that all of us would walk out of here trusting in Jesus and not trying to trust in ourselves and whatever manifestation that is. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Help us, Lord. Thank you for the compassion that you lavish on us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't seem to have a bulletin, so I'm going to have to ask you, what are we singing? My Jesus, I love you. So this is a wonderful prayer of a, of a wonderful old hymn, and I hope you'll pay attention.